to the 91st episode of the Podcast F4. We're calling it that since it's easier to say than food and frightening film fanatics. Before we get started, our usual disclaimer, heavy spoilers ahead. Turn back now if you haven't seen these movies. This week we're covering the Gates of Hell trilogy by Italian director Lucio Fulci. He was known as the godfather of gore. He passed away in 1996. And he directed, assistant directed some 76 films and served as a writer on 66 and a number of different genres. But he is best known for his horror or giallo films. The most popular of those is the trilogy we're going to talk about today, as well as Zombie 2 from 1979. Uh, it was released just in the U.S. as Zombie. It has that famous shark versus zombie scene. Um, but we'll cover it and some of his other films separately because I didn't think I could do them all justice here. So besides Zombie 2, there was a Zombie 3, I think there was a Zombie 4. Lizard in a Woman's Skin he also directed from 71. Don't Touch a, Don't Torture a Duckling from 72. The New York Ripper from 82. Contraband from 80. For the Apocalypse from 65. The Psychic from 77. The Black Cat from 81. The Devil's Honey from 86. A Cat in the Brain from 1990. There are also a number of other films where he's listed as a co-producer, but that's just him lending his name to the film in order to promote it. His Gates of Hell trilogy, really in terms of the story, don't have anything to do with each other. There are a couple of common elements, though the first, of course, is Fulci, uh, number two, all three of these were co-written by Dardano Sacchetti, and he worked frequently with Fulci. All three of these movies star Catriona McCall. She was Fulci's cinematic muse for several years. The scores for City of the Living Dead and The Beyond are by Fabio Frizzi. He was a frequent collaborator, collaborator with Fulci. He also, interestingly, did a score for 2018's Puppet Master The Littlest Reich, which we already covered the Puppet Master franchise a while back. And lastly, Daniela Doria had small parts in City of the Living Dead and House by the Cemetery. She was also in Fulci's The Ripper of New York. First up, City of the Living Dead, or as it was known in Italy, the full title, Fear in the City of the Living Dead. It was released in the U.S. as The Gates of Hell. Uh, it came out in Italy in 1980, released in the U.S. in 1983. And obviously directed by Fulci. The screenplay was also by Fulci and Dardano, produced by Fulci and Dardano. The music, as I said previously, by Fabio Frizzi, starring Christopher George, as Peter Bell, you'll know him from lots of TV shows, including Rat Patrol, and Catriona McCall, as we already said, um, is in this. Here she plays the main character, Mary Woodhouse, Carlo DiMaggio as Jerry, Antonella Interlingi as Emily Robbins, Giovanni Lombardo Radice as Bob, and incidentally, he did a whole bunch of Italian films, and he's often known for getting killed in different ways in films. He also did Cannibal Holocaust. Fabio Javine as Father William Thomas and Janet Agreen as Sandra. Runtime on this movie is 93 minutes. Box office, 
925 million lira, which I think converts to somewhere around 115,000 U.S. dollars. This movie should not be confused with 1960's City of the Dead. That's the one that stars Christopher Lee and is about a college student who travels to a sleepy town in Massachusetts to research witchcraft and get more than she bargained for. So yeah, in my head, I often confused these two movies, and also I thought City of the Living Dead was a knockoff, since there are a number of movies that contain the living dead, of uh, Romero's movies, but it's not. The second movie, and we're covering them in terms of the dates that they were released, is The Beyond, released in Italy in 1981, released in the U.S. in 1983, under the name Seven Doors of Death, Directed, of course, again by Fulci. Screenplay by Fulci, Dardano, um, Giorgio Marizzo. Produced by Fabrizio D. Angelis. Store, story by Dardano. Music again by Fabio Frizzi. Starring again Catriona McCall. As, this time as Liza Merrill. Um, she's billed here as Catherine McCall for some reason. Also starring David Warbeck as Dr. John McCabe, Sarah Keller as Emily, whose real name is Cinzio Monrelli, and she did several other films with Fulci as well. Antoine St. John as Schweik, um... And you'll find out who he is in a second. And Veronica Lazar as Martha. Runtime is 87 minutes. Budget $400,000. Box office, I think $416,000. Don't quote me on these numbers because I didn't convert them correctly, I don't think. This is another movie. There is another film named The Beyond from 2017. That's a sci-fi movie that has nothing to do with this. So just in case you run into that one. And lastly, The House by the Cemetery, released in Italy in 1981, released in U.S. in 1984, directed, of course, by Fulci, screenplay again by Dardano, uh, and the same people again, produced by the same people again, story by Eliza Livia Briganti, starring again Catriona McCall, this time as Lucy Boyle. She's again credited as Catherine McCall here, also starring... Pablo Opiolo Malco as Dr. Norman Bowl and Ania Perian as Anne the Babysitter, Giovanni Frieza as Bob. Incidentally, Bob um, went on in st- to be in a number of different other movies. I think he also ran a martial arts studio, and I think last time I thing I saw on him, he was living in Los Angeles with his family. There's also Silvio Colatina as May, Dagmar Lassinger as Laura. Runtime, 86 minutes, budget of 600 million lira, box office of uh, 1408 billion lira. Where to find these movies? Shudder has all three movies and also has Zombie 2 and the New York Ripper. Uh, one of these movies, House by the Cemetery, 
was also featured on Joe Bob Briggs' The Last Drive-In, so that's definitely worth a watch because it includes uh, guest Eli Roth talking about the details of the movie. He is a big Fulci fan. Tubi has City of the Living Dead as well as some of his other movies, The New York Ripper, Demonia, Manhattan Baby, Contraband, Enigma, Conquest, and Silver Saddle. Amazon has City of the Living Dead for free. It has Beyond, Zombie 2, Silver Saddle for the use of $4. City of the Living Dead is on Voodoo for free. And City and House by the Cemetery are in the usual other spots, Google Play, YouTube, Apple TV, Sling TV for the usual prices. And I think um, Beyond is probably the hardest of these three to find across the board in any streaming service. None of these movies are, appear on Netflix or Hulu. Rotten Tomatoes scores, City of the Living Dead, critics gave it a 46%, audiences gave it 56%, The Beyond, critics gave it a 67%, audiences gave it a 76%. Uh, many people consider The Beyond to be the best of all of Fulci's movies. House by the Cemetery, critics gave it a 45%, audiences gave it a 48%, so the lowest rated of the three. On to the plot. I'll do the usual and read the brief IMDb synopsis first, and then just talk briefly about the plot. So the City of Living Dead, IMDb says... A reporter and a psychic race to close the gates of hell after the suicide of a clergyman causes them to open, allowing the dead to rise from their graves. Um, as we open, a priest named Father Thomas hangs himself. Then it's off to a seance in New York City where Mary appears to have died after seeing a vision of him. They have a funeral and she wakes up buried in a casket. Luckily, reporter Peter Bell is investigating her murder. He happens by the cemetery when they're burying her, and then there's a very tense scene in which he thinks he hears something, then he walks away, then he comes back, then he walks away. I think that was very well done. Uh, it ends up that he finally hear her, hears her. He breaks open the casket with a pickaxe, which comes very close to hitting her in the head numerous times. So I thought that was a very good scene. Um, now they're off to Dunwick because in her vision of the seance, that's where she saw these things happening. They have to close the gates of hell before All Saints Day, which is 48 hours away, or the dead will walk the earth, bringing an end to the world. I guess all of this was foretold in a 4,000-year-old book known as the book of Enoch or Enoch um, they team up with psychiatrist Jerry and his patient Sandra Sandra is off by Emily a much too young I think girlfriend of Jerry and she was killed by a guy named Bob the police declare a state of emergency and tell everyone to stay in their houses we see some guys trapped in a bar when the dead start arriving and kill them and it's now All Saints' Eve, so I think it's too late, and the door is open. Um, meanwhile, they're still trying to do something. The threesome of Jerry, Mary, and Peter find this Thomas family crypt and descend into it. But Sandra arrives and kills Peter. Then Jerry stabs her with, I don't know if it's a rebar, a wooden stake, something. 
then she dies, but I thought she was already dead, because I thought she was a zombie. Um, then the dead start surrounding Jerry and Mary. Father Thomas appears in the crypt. Jerry stabs him too, and Father Thomas bursts into flames for some reason. He finally croaks, and then all the zombies are gone, and the two ascend out of the crypt, and they see this little boy named John John, who was the brother of Emily, running towards them. He's happy to see Mary. He runs towards her, but at the last minute, we don't see them, but off screen we hear um, her yell no. Her or the guy are both yell no. And then all of a sudden, these black squiggly lines appear on the screen. And that's it until they fill up the screen. So I'll tell you now, the City of the Living Dead does not have an ending. We're never really sure why. Um, one story is that the ending got destroyed and they didn't go back and film it. Uh, Fulci never really clarified what was going on. But theories abound as to what this means if you take this at the end of the movie. So one is that John John is a zombie, so they're trying to stay away from him, but he doesn't look like a zombie. Number two, Mary and Jerry are actually in hell. That's interesting. Number three, the pr police officers with John John are zombies. Uh, we got a quick look at them, and they didn't look like zombies. Or Mary and Jerry thought they'd stopped the undead with a stake to the gut, but they did not. And lastly, this one, I don't know, might, I might buy this one as the what the ending means. Everything we saw after Mary's death was her descent into hell. She never woke up in the coffin. But either way, there's no way to tell what is accurate, so it's up to your interpretation. Um, but there are some great scenes in this movie. As I said previously, Mary being buried live in the coffin was really good. There's a, a kill scene with a drill bit to the brain. There's a maggot storm, which is crazy. There is a woman who looks like she's hacking up her intestines. And um, their trip into the crypt, underground crypt, was pretty freaky too. So that's the City of the Living Dead. Next up, the Beyond. IMDb says, a young woman inherits an old hotel in Louisiana where following a series of supernatural accidents, she learns that the building was built over one of the entrances to hell. The movie starts in 1972 in Louisiana, where some locals, I think, form a lynch mob, sneak up on a painter who uh, is staying in the hotel, drag him to the basement, and kill him by, I don't know if it's acid or what, it melts his face. Fast forward to the present day, which in this case is 1980s. As I said, a woman inherits the hotel, but little does she know the basement contains the door to hell. A blind woman appears in the middle of the road at some point with a German shepherd and warns her to stay away, but she doesn't. People that work at the hotel start croaking. A doctor happens by to try to take care of one of the guys. He thinks the woman's crazy because he doesn't see anything she's seeing they eventually end up back at the hospital where the dead come to life including those in body bags they try to escape um, he shoots a bunch of them in the gut then he shoots a few of them in the head I guess he doesn't know you have to shoot zombies in the head to kill them 
but they go into some sort of stairwell and they end up back in the basement of the house again. Then they walk through a door and everything is all freaky looking. Uh, there are dead bodies everywhere. And the ending has them turning and they can't go back. They don't see the door anymore. They're stuck there and their eyes become all clouded just like the blind woman. And then there's some quote at the end which I don't remember or care to look up. But So that's the ending of that movie. It's pretty bleak and I actually like it like that. Um, some fun scenes. Oh, one more thing after that. We see that the scene where those two now are is the scene that the painter was painting um, when they killed him back in 19, whatever that was, 27, uh, because they thought he was a warlock. So good scenes in this movie include a really good carnivorous tarantula attack where they rip off this guy's like skin and lips and stuff. I hate spiders, so that really... I couldn't even watch the whole thing of that. I had to look away. But um, I thought that was a very good scene. Uh, this scene is also... has a scene which is reminiscent of Suspiria where the seeing eye dog seems to become possessed and kills the blind woman by ripping out her throat. And he bites off her ear. And this movie also had lots more zombies, so that was fun. And these zombies aren't like just a little bit zombies. I mean, most of the zombies in Fulci films, which is why people like them so much, they really look like they're decaying. Um, so that's why he has the nickname Godfather of Gore. Lastly, The House by the Cemetery, IMDb says, A New England home is terrorized by a series of murders, unbeknownst to the guests that a gruesome secret is hiding in the basement. At least the title is pretty straightforward. There is a house, and it's by an old cemetery. The movie opens with a woman getting a knife to the back of the head, which then comes out her mouth. This is actress Daniela Doria, who we already talked about. She is also the person that vomited up intestines in City of the Living Dead. So, in this story, there's a professor slash historian named Peterson who is researching, I guess, the Freudstein house where he was staying. In the end, he ends up killing his mistress and then hanging himself. So, another professor, we think, a guy named Norman, takes his place at the house and brings his wife Lucy and their little boy Bob. Uh, Bob has a He-Man haircut. He's kind of freaky looking. And the biggest distinction here about Bob is that this is the worst voice dubbing of any child, I think, in the history of cinema. It's horrible. They didn't even get a kid to do the dubbing, and it's really distracting. Um, I can't think of any other voice dubbing that's worse than this. Anyway, standout scenes in this movie include lots of freaky eye close-ups. Fulci is known for... Uh, eye torture scenes and then the thing about um, Freudstein being buried in the hallway in the house I don't know if that's true or not but her husband tells her that in New England people got buried in the house all the time because the ground was too cold in the winter time to bury them 
Bob almost gets an axe to the face when he is stuck in the basement and his father's trying to break him out. Also, everyone in this movie, there are lots of eye close-ups back and forth, which makes you think everybody in this movie is suspicious and knows more than they do, including the babysitter Anne and Norman. I don't have... I'm not sure where Anne came from or why she's there, but in the end, she gets killed too, so it looks like she really didn't know anything about what was going on in the house. At one point, she's... She acts very strangely. She's cleaning up. There's a ton of blood in the floor where whatever lives in the basement killed the realtor when she came by and then drug her into the basement. So Anne is cleaning up all this blood in the basement. Then Lucy comes into the kitchen. She sees the blood, but she doesn't say anything. And then Anne just offers her a cup of coffee. And that's it. So who knows? There's like 10 gallons of blood on the floor. Anyway... It turns out that the thing in the basement is a rotting Dr. Freudstein, and he has to, I guess, kill people or drink their blood or something in order to stay alive. There's also a weird, weird little girl named May, who at the beginning of the movie and throughout it keeps warning Bob not to go to the house. He tries to get his mother not to go, but of course she doesn't listen to him. And one of the funniest things about this movie is a hilarious bat puppet attack against Norman when they go in the basement. Um, yeah, it is hilarious. It made me laugh and I'm, when I'm watching the movie by myself, so that's always a good sign. Um, I guess they weren't going for realism there. Anyway, the guy ends up stabbing the bat over and over again, but obviously it's just a little furry puppet bat so anyway the ending of this movie um has it's pretty predictable so what happens of course bob stuck in the basement norman and lucy try to get him out they end up in the basement the freudstein zombie whose head looks like a potato sack for some reason attacks them kills the mother and father bob's trying to get out of the crypt uh, trying to get out of the basement through this crypt that has a little opening in it, but his head won't fit out. And then all of a sudden, May shows up with, I guess, Mrs. Freudstein and says Bob will be staying with them in the house. So May's a ghost, and I guess Bob's dead, and he's stuck in the house for all eternity. Then there's a fake James Henry quote. On to trivia. There's a great video on Shudder or Tubi, or I'm sure other places, called All the Colors of Giallo, which covers Fulci, Argento, Mario Bavo, etc. So I definitely recommend that if you're interested in Giallo films. There's also a good documentary called Fulci for Fake on Tubi, and it includes interviews with Fulci's daughters, Camilla, which takes up most of the film, and then also Antonella. Um, his daughter Camilla served as assistant director on his last five films and she later worked in the industry as an assistant director on other films. So that's very interesting and the reason for that title for Full Chief for Fake is it's based on the premise that a guy is getting ready to portray Fulci in a play or a movie or whatever and so he goes to interview people who knew him. 
So that's very interesting, behind-the-scenes look. Uh, Fulci's private life was a mess. His wife died from suicide in 1969 after finding out that she had inoperable cancer. Um, he had, I think, an illegitimate daughter killed in a car crash. Um, his daughter, Camilla, was had a horse riding accident, and she was paralyzed for a while, and then she had something else later in life. She passed away shortly after appearing in that movie, I think like three months after appearing in Fulci for Fake. He also suffered from a number of mental, physical um, health issues. He was a diabetic, and he also had a lot of financial problems. He was notoriously difficult to work with, according to some people. But in his defense, he was working on very low-budget movies under a very tight time schedule. But, again, that's no excuse. And he had lost his home at the end of his life and was living in a cramped apartment where he passed away. Uh, Dario Argento paid for his funeral arrangements. Now, on to some trivia about each one of these films. City of the Living Dead... Director Lucio Fulci also carried around a bag with his trademark pipe and tobacco. One day on set, he reached into his bag and find, found a handful of maggots, which had been used earlier in the film for the scenes where the maggots are blown through a window. The perpetrator of this prank is rumored to be Christopher George, the film's lead actor who did not get along well with Fulci. It seems like Fulci had the same opinion of actors that Hitchcock did, which was pretty low. But um, in some of these interviews with um, uh, Catriona and also, who else was it? Another one of the women that was in his movies, they seemed to get along fine with him, so I'm not sure. The scene where the window opens wide and lots of maggots flying in was filmed with the help of two wind machines and 22 pounds of actual maggots. Yuck. Each German release was banned over the course of over 20 years. The movie was first released on video uh, with the German title I will not try to say, but it translates to a zombie hung on a bell rope in 1992. It was banned in 86... And a second video with the title translated to A Dead Body Hung on a Bell Rope was released with several cuts. Even that version was banned. In 1988, a final version was released with the title A Corpse Hung on a Bell Rope. It was heavily cut without any gore scenes left. Rumors said the video distributors actually designed a new video called A Cadaver Hung on a Bell Rope in case the third version would were to get banned again. Surprisingly, the third version was banned even up until 2001. Future director Michelle Sovi, sorry I know I'm butchering these names, was originally up for the role of Bob. However, Fulci changed his mind and decided to go with Giovanni Lombardo Radice instead. And Sovi was given a smaller role. When theatrically released in the United States in 1983, the original title was Twilight of the Dead, due to the fact that both the title and the poster were derivative of Dawn of the Dead. Universal Films Distribution 
company filed a cease and desist order against motion picture marketing. Posters and prints of the movies bearing the title Twilight of the Dead were pulled, altered, and sent back with the new title, The Gates of Hell. The character Bob, played by Giovanni Lombardo Radice, was originally intended to be a hunchback. However, Radice decided against wearing the hump that was made for him and instead portrayed the character as having a stiff, lurching gait. It was very hot when they filmed this movie. It was like 108 degrees Fahrenheit. The Book of Enoch that is mentioned here is a non-canonical Jewish religious work going back to the 4th century BCE. It is considered canon by the Ethiopian Orthodox Church and Eritrean Orthodox Church, but not by other Christian groups. Fulci appears in this film as the pathologist at the crime scene that examines Emily's dead body. And as I said, there are tons of explanations for how the end took shape it did, and neither Lucio Fulci nor Dardano would ever offer any help or straighten it out. Some said the editor spilled coffee on the footage of the original film, forcing the crew to improvise. Some said Fulci changed his mind about the end after the shooting was complete, and this was the best they could do. Um, and we already said Daniela Doria, who appears in several of his films, is the person that vomited out the um, her intestines in the movie. And that is actually sheep intestines that she vomited up. And then, of course, they used a fake head, which you can tell, um, with a pump that spewed out more and more of the intestines. Now, on to the beyond. Bob Morawski of Grindhouse Leasing, who restored the film in 1998, is a film editor and used a shot from this film in the Spider-Man Dream Sequence. Spider-Man from 2002. The DVD includes commentary by Catriona McCall and David Warmnick. Interestingly, this was recorded two weeks before Warbeck's death from cancer. And in the commentary, he talks about his illness. Um, the Book of Elban Featured prominently in the film is a creation of American pulp writer, poet, and fine artist Clark Aston Smith and is a recurring text associated with the Cthulhu mythos, of course, by H.P. Lovecraft. The book, which deals with various arcane subjects, includes the resurrection of the dead, demonic magic, parallel dimensions, and other black magic subjects, and is alleged to have been imparted to the infamous necromancer Eben by the ancient devil god uh, T-S-A-T-H-O-G-G-U-A. The book was introduced in Smith's 1933 short story <coughs> Uba Sathla. The library used in this movie was also used in House by the Cemetery. Swedish rock band Europe, remember them? based the song Seven Doors of Hell from the first album on this film.
The song was a big hit in Japan and is still a popular track at their live shows. The film was never seen in America in its uncut form until 1998. Quentin Tarantino's Rolling Thunder Picture released the restored DVD as it was his favorite horror film when initially released. Larry Ray, who played the window cleaner, was head of the Louisiana Film Commission at the time. Director Lucio Fulci had his zombie star Tisha Farrow in mind for the lead of the film, but by the time he started filming, she had left acting. Interestingly, you may or may not know this, she is, I think, the little sister of Mia Farrow. The role of the blind girl... Emily was originally offered to Stefania Cassini, who declined. Director's cameo, the librarian who goes out to lunch right before the architect is attacked by spiders in the library. During the final scene in the Beyond's Abyss, the sand-covered bodies laying on the ground were actually stark naked derelicts who were paid in alcohol. Didn't know that. Fulci decided to no longer work with the Italian distributors who produced his film Zombie due to their title fiasco trying to cash in on the success of Dawn of the Dead. He approached Medusa distributors, technically making this a German production, when he intended the film to be purely a metaphysical horror film with the only villain, Schweik, being a zombie. However, the executives insisted on a zombie rampage somewhere in the film's climax due to zombie being a massive hit worldwide, including in Germany. Fulci was hesitant at first, but agreed after being promised creative control over everything else in the film. Very much like Zombie, the film was renamed in both Germany and the U.S. Unlike Zombie, the titles were original and not intended to cash in on other films. In Germany, it was called The Ghost Town of Zombies. In the U.S., it was briefly called Seven Doors of Death and was given a whole new score. Many people have assumed Emily's brutal death from her seeing eye dog biting her throat and ear off as gratuitous violence, which is a staple in most of Fulci's films. However, this was intended to be a visual, albeit gory, interpretation of the phrase, see no evil, hear no evil, speak no evil. She was blinded from her view of hell, then was killed with such a in such a brutal manager due to her warnings to Lisa, so she was not supposed to warn her about turning back. Uh, Fulci and David Warbeck answered the phone at the jazz salon. The director is reflected in the mirror behind him. Some reports say the original ending was supposed to have all of the dead people at amusement park having a good time after they died. I think that's pretty funny, and that would have been interesting to see, but I uh, like this bleak ending that they have. So really, if you look at all three of these movies, all of them have a bleak ending. If you consider there is no ending on um, City of the Living Dead, if you interpret that as uh, zombies are still alive, or... Um, What's-Her-Face is dead in the coffin, or they, the gates of hell are still open. Lastly, trivia for the House by Cemetery.
filmed on the Ellis Estate in S-C-I-T-U-A-T-E, Massachusetts, where another Italian horror film, Ghost House, from 1988, was filmed. The film, this film's original shooting title was Freudstein. One of the early VHS issues of this film in the U.S. had several of the film's reels out of order, further confusing an already erratic story. <laughs> That's pretty funny. Although most of the dialogue was done in English, the two children's dialogue is in Italian. The movie has nonetheless dubbed in post-production, and I already said dubbing on Boy Bob is horrible. Piallo Malco kept one of the mechanical bats that was used in the sequence in which the bat bites his hand. Sylvia Colatina, who plays May Freudstein, was also the hands of Dr. Freudstein. And the kid that plays Bob was eight years old at the time. It is said that Catriona McCall overcame her aversion to bats due to filming this. I'm not sure why, because that didn't even look remotely like a real bat. It uses some music from the spaghetti western Django's Cut Price Corpses. Uh, another director cameo. Fulci plays Professor Mueller, who talks with Norman on the New York City street. The estate agent, uh, well, they called the estate agent, I called a realtor's death, was originally longer and nastier and included eye gouging, a Fulci trait. This was cut because Fulci didn't think the effects were realistic enough. Though the final line, no one will ever know where the children, whether the children are monsters or the monsters are children, is attributed to Henry James. It's actually fabricated by Fulci. The scene where... Piallo Malco stabs Dr. Freudstein in the stomach with a steak knife was done in a single take. And that's it for the trivia. Why should you watch these movies? Well, as I said, Fulci is considered one of the most important directors in the Italian giallo movement and also in horror as well. If you look up a list of top ten um, horror directors, he's typically in that list. And he upped the horror game in a number of ways, as we said, with the gore and with the eye gouging and also with the bleak endings. Just don't expect the movies to make any sense and you'll have a lot more fun. Now on to the recipes. It should come no surprise that I'm doing Italian food. So I have a couple of Italian foods from the website. Um, walksofitaly.com has the 16 most iconic foods to eat in Italy. I'm not going to go through all 16 of them, but I'm just going to hit a few of them. So number one should come as no surprise. It is pizza. Um, there are two different kinds of pizza. The Neapolitan pizza from Naples and Roman pizza. Um... Neapolitan pizza has a thick, fluff, fluffy crust. It tends to be smaller in diameter because the dough hasn't been rolled out as far and it's more filling. Roman-style pizza has a paper-thin crust and just the slightest crunch. It's larger in diameter but typically lighter. Um, 
We don't know if this is true or not, but the story is about the Neapolitan pizza that Queen Margareta was in Naples and wanted to try some of the pizza that she'd seen other people eating, so someone made a pizza for her that was the colors of the Italian flag, so red for the tomato sauce, uh, white for the pizza, and green for basil. It is said that if you're eating pizza in Italy, you don't want to eat something that has a lot of toppings on it because that means that the the main ingredients, the three main ingredients, aren't as good. Uh, next up, I'll spell it B-O-T-T-A-R-G-A. This is actually sometimes called Sicilian caviar and of course fish eggs. A solid hunk of eggs the color of amber and blood oranges when sliced and eaten and grated over pasta. Um, it is now considered one of the most sought after and luxurious foodstuffs in Italy, right up there with truffles. Of course, lasagna. Lasagna is a wide, flat pasta noodle, usually baked in layers in the oven. Like most Italian dishes, its origins are hotly contested, but they think that it comes from Emilia Romagna, R-O-M-A-G-N-A, where it, like pizza, was transformed from a poor man's dish to a rich man's filled with ragu or meat sauce. Traditional lasagna wasn't made with tomatoes. Remember, those came from the New World in the 16th century, only ragu and cheese. Um, even today, only a bit of tomato or tomato sauce is used in traditional ragu, unlike many Italian-American dishes which are basically swimming in tomato sauce. This concentrates the flavor of the meat, but sometimes it's a little jarring for American palates. That includes a recipe to a traditional lasagna there. Fiorentina steak. Uh, also called a Florentine T-bone steak. As with many of these other recipes, it comes from a specific region. It's a big steak and a Apparently, it's traditionally made from a chiaina cow raised in Tuscany. It's cooked for five to seven minutes on each side, depending on the thickness, until the outside is cooked and the inside remains very raw. No sense in asking for a medium well-done steak here. The meat is too thick to even think about. Despite all the dogma, there are some variations of the Florentine steak. For one, the meat isn't always from that specific cow. Many Florentines are okay with the addition of new breeds, but others swear that enormous size and muscle of that type of cow makes the best T-bone steaks. Next up, uh, Ribolita, R-I-B-O-L-L-I-T-A. It's a hearty soup that has no meat in it. It's a vegetable soup. It's thickened with bread instead of meat. Another uh, originally um, original dish eaten by poorer people. It is now considered a special treat in the autumn with the taste of harvest vegetables at its most vibrant, and the soup explodes with intense savoriness despite the absence of meat. Often eaten as a first course instead of pasta, it 
is a hearty stew that shows off the immense and often untapped power of great produce. Next up, polenta. Um, it is a staple starch eaten in the northern parts of the boot. This corn mush, which is nearly identical to grits, eaten in the southern states of the U.S., of course, um, was originally made from whatever starches were handy, including acorns and buckwheat. However, the introduction of corn to Europe in the 16th century saw it become the dominant ingredient in polenta. Although it lacks the diversity in shapes and texture the pasta has, polenta is the perfect accompaniment to a wide variety of meats, especially stewed meats, and is arguably one of the most comforting foods you can eat when the temperature drops in cities like Milan, Turin, and Venice. Look for it as a mush or packed and fried into fritters. Osabuco. Um... is a bone-in veal shank cooked low and slow until it is melting tender in a broth of meat stock, white wine, and veggies. Although the Milanese like to claim this meaty masterpiece as there are many versions and it's also in Lombardy where it's known as hearty, often rustic dishes that are good for coating the ribs and staving off the winter chill. Despite the popularity, um, its name means hollow bone. It is not always commonly seen in restaurant menus because it needs at least three hours of cooking time. Risotto, rounding out the holy trinity of Italian starches, is rice, which often eaten as a creamy, luxurious risotto. Ironically, Italians aren't big rice eaters, what with all the pasta and the polenta, but they are the largest producers of rice in Europe. While southern Italy is often called the country's breadbasket, northern Italy, especially Lombardy and Piedmont, are the rice bowl. It's fitting then that there are several uh, varieties grown and there are vast rice patties in these regions. The most famous type of risotto is probably the saffron-infused Risotto al Milanese, which was invented according to legend by the workmen working on the Milan Cathedral who were using saffron to dye the stained glass windows and figured they would throw in throw it into the rice. Carbonara. It's possible to go to Italy and never eat anything besides pasta, but there is also one bucket list pasta that everyone should try at least once. Our voice our vote goes to carbonara. Um, the dish is deceptively simple. Spaghetti, eggs, cheese, and black pepper. Um, there are many imitations, namely those that thicken their sauces with cream or use bacon instead of, uh, I don't know how to say this, G-U-A-N-C-I-A-L-E, but except, except no substitutions because the difference in taste is enormous. This is a Roman specialty, but even in the capital, there are still plenty of restaurants that can and do get it wrong. The best way to ensure you a served exemplary version is to get a recommendation from a local. Truffles. You think of truffles from France, but also truffles are very big in Italy. Uh, grown in the wild, this tuber is found by hunting the forest and mountains of Umbria and the Piedmont with dogs or pigs trained to smell it underground.
Um, the smell sometimes is off-putting to some people who consider it akin to the smell of gasoline. Truffles grow naturally throughout Umbria, Tuscany, and Piedmont, and you're more likely to find fresh truffles in local dishes in those areas, but only if you go in the autumn. Focaccia, another bread. There are hundreds of types of breads in Italy. The best one is the one cooked, baked locally that morning, wherever you happen to be. But you shouldn't leave without trying at least a few of the various types of Italy's robust baking culture. Off the coast of Italy, in Sardinia, the classic bread doesn't look like bread at all, instead appearing more like a pita. Pane, C-A-R-A-S-A-U, was named for the word carasara, which means toast. Surprising, unsurprisingly, this bread, paper thin, is also toasted after baking, giving it a wonderful crunch. Uh, the coffee's on this list, but I will pass that to go to gelato. No trip to Italy is complete without gelato. Though gelato translates to ice cream, this is not quite the same. By law, gelato has far less butter fat than ice cream, about 4 to 8% compared to 14% for ice cream in the U.S. The low fat content means that gelato is served a bit warmer and tends to melt in your mouth faster. It also intensifies the flavor, and gives it a more velvety texture. Gelato has a much higher density. Regular ice cream has air and water added to increase volume and weight. Unfortunately, these additions also make it less, less flavorful. This practice is illegal in Italy, leaving gelato, at least traditional artisan gelato, super sweet and super flavorful. Tiramisu. Um, if you want to branch out from gelato, try some tiramisu, which is probably the country's most loved after-dinner dessert. This no-bake parfait, alternating layers of soft, sweet, marcapone, cheese, and coffee-soaked ladyfingers. Uh, it has a relatively recent creation and is believed to have been created in the 1960s. A good tiramisu features only the highest quality coffee and marscapone. Cream and eggs are sometimes added to give it a lighter texture and a variety of cookies and cakes can be substituted for the traditional lady fingers. And lastly, the digestivo. The digestivo does not refer to one drink, but a class of drinks that is enjoyed after a big meal with an aim of settling the stomach and helping you feel not quite so full. Drinking them dates back to the Middle Ages when people all over Europe believed in the medicinal properties of the alcohol mixed with sugar and herbs. Although the doctors are still out on the actual medicinal benefits of drinks, um, many people still drink them and you cannot enjoy a real Italian meal unless you top it off with a shot of the hard stuff. Popular digestives include, I'm not going to try to uh, say some of these, but limoncello, grappa, um, and amaretto, to name a few. Or, if you're feeling brave, Sambuco has enough alcohol, this says in this article, to make a horse giddy. If you step off the beaten track in Italy, you will also discover all types of nice post-dinner drinks made from local fruits and herbs.
So that's it for some Italian foods. Now where to find us? We're on iTunes, Spotify, and Stitcher. Please give us a five-star rating if you like what you're hearing. We need all the help we can get. We're also on Twitter at Food and Fright. Contact us by email at foodandfright at gmail.com or visit our website at foodandfrighteningfilmfanatics.podbean.com. So that's it for this week. Um, I, uh, I personally enjoyed um, these three films. As I said, you just have to know how to watch them and so that you don't try to make sense and figure out what's going on with the plot. But I definitely recommend these three and also Zombie, which we will cover at a later date. So until then, hope you're having a great weekend, and we'll talk to you later. Bye.